Happy Father's Day, everybody. Thank you. So glad to have all of the dads who are joining us today, whether you're doing that at one of our campuses or online. Thank you so much for allowing us to be just a small part of your very special day. Now, if you've noticed, we are beginning, kicking off this week, our summer book study series through the New Testament book of Romans. And I'm so excited about that, so excited that you're a part of this kickoff service. And I want to begin today by asking you a question. The question is this, what is the most important letter you've ever received? Now, those of you under 30 are going, letter? What's a letter? But for the rest of us, think about it. Think back over the whole course of your life. What is the most important letter you ever received? Right? Can you think of it? Maybe it was that college acceptance letter that, you know, let you know you'd gotten into the school of your choice. Maybe you were informed that you had gotten a job that you had applied for. Uh, Anybody get proposed to in a letter? No, that's a good thing. (laughs) All right, how about this? Anybody get drafted into the military by a letter? Any of those? Yeah, maybe one or two. How about this? Anybody ever gotten an IRS audit letter in the mail? See, that, that, yeah, a few of you. Yeah, we can talk about that later. That's the thing about letters. They're powerful because they can bring you good news. Letters can bring you bad news. Letters can bring you life-changing news. There's power in letters, especially in our modern text, email, emoji, abbreviation, communication culture, to realize that that somebody would be willing to take the time to sit down, to not only write out a letter, but to get a stamp and an envelope and put it in the mail. Letters are powerful because of who writes them, why they write them, what they are trying to communicate with you. Speaking of most important letters, I have a collection of letters. These letters are to me, they are personal and they are over 40 years old. You know what these are? These are all the letters and cards that my wife Terry sent me when we first started dating. Because see, we lived on opposite ends of the state of South Carolina. We met one summer working together in a summer camp and then when school started, we went back to our homes and back then there was no text, no email, no FaceTime. The only way we could communicate verbally was long distance phone calls, landlines, which my father constantly reminded me in those days were unbelievably expensive. You paid by the minute for long distance phone calls. So for us to communicate, we wrote letters, I should be honest. She wrote a lot of letters and cards, I wrote a few. And I've kept them for all these years because they're special to me. So collectively we can all go, ah, okay. If you think these letters are cool, guess what? These are even more cool. Do you know what these letters are? These are all the letters my dad wrote to my mom when they were dating and he was stationed in the Pacific as a Marine during World War II. 
It's crazy because they had only dated like one, maybe two times before he enlisted and was shipped overseas. And so these letters are his courtship. They're all the reasons he's trying to convince her that he would be a good person to marry. These letters are precious to me. They're powerful letters. But as great as those letters are, today I believe we are beginning a journey into the most powerful letter ever written. I understand that's a bold statement for me to make it, but, but I'm not alone in making it. In fact, third century church father Augustine credits the book of Romans for his salvation. He came to faith as a result of just reading the book of Romans. Martin Luther, the great reformer, started the Reformation movement as a result of studying the book of Romans with college students at Wittenberg College. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, started the Wesleyan revivals as a result of just reading the book of Romans. In fact, John Calvin describes Romans as a roadmap to help a person understand the entire Bible. But what I want you to know is that this book of Romans not only changed Christian history, but I believe it still has the power to change our lives if we'll let it. And I think for that to happen over these next seven weeks, for this time this summer to be more than just a book study we did in the summer of 2022 at Cedar Creek Church, there are things we're going to have to do intentionally and collectively as a church in order to see God use this powerful letter to impact our lives and our church. Three things I wanna ask you to consider committing to over these next 56 days. One, I wanna ask you to commit to being a part of these weekend messages. Over the next seven weeks, collectively, myself and some of our teaching pastors, we're gonna teach through this book and I want you to be a part of those messages. Now, I get it, it's summer. We're gonna be coming and going, but this is the cool thing about technology. You can be a part of these messages anytime, every time, no matter where you are. So I wanna ask you to commit to at least listening to if you're not able to be at church for these seven messages. Second thing I wanna ask you to commit to is the daily reading. Every day over the next seven weeks, we're gonna post a passage from the book of Romans. We're actually gonna start, it started this morning with uh, Romans chapter one. We're gonna read right through, beginning verse by verse all the way through. And so if you are not uh, on the Cedar Creek Church app, please make sure you download that because every morning when you wake up, it's gonna be sitting there waiting for you. It's a passage of scripture to read. I want us to all read through the book of Romans together as a church family. But more than just reading it every day, I wanna ask you to engage with it. So what I'm gonna ask you to do is just to start journaling. Some of you journal, that's great. Some of you have never done that, that's okay. Either get a little notebook, get a journal, or use the note app on your phone. And as you're reading a passage, just write down. What are you thinking? Questions you have, just write down. What do you think God is saying to you? Let's engage with this phenomenal life-changing book. And then the third thing I wanna ask you to commit to this summer is prayer to be in a spirit of prayer, to ask God to show you 
what in his word from this book of Romans you need to learn, you need to apply, you need to engage with, but also pray and ask God to use it in the life of our church family. So three things, be a part of the weekend messages, daily reading with journaling, and then be in a spirit of prayer because I truly believe God wants to use this summer and this study to transform lives and to transform our church and to transform our community. So what I wanna do today is just kind of a, an overview, a, a, a flyby, a 50,000 foot flyby for the book of Romans. And so to truly understand the book of Romans, you have to recognize that at its heart, the book of Romans is a letter. It's a letter written by one man, one man to a group of people that he cared dearly about who lived in a city that was very important to him. You know, I told you last week, the most important thing in understanding the Bible when you read it is understanding the context, right? The context around it. And so today, I wanna ask five key context questions about the book of Romans. Five things everybody needs to know about the book of Romans before we dive into it. Now, let me just say, if you're new, obviously this message today is gonna be different than what I normally do or what we normally do with our messages. This is gonna feel a little more academic, a little more like you're in a seminary class or a college history class. And I know for some of you, you love that stuff. You're a little bit nerdy. You like to find out all this information. You'll be taking tons of notes. But I also recognize for some of us today, we're just trying to get through the day, right? We came in today just going, Lord, I need you. You need some encouragement. You need some strength. And if that's you, don't check out because here's the cool thing about God's word. No matter how you study it, no matter how you engage it, no matter how you look at it, it is living and active. And it always brings hope and encouragement to us. So if you're struggling today, I believe God has something to say for every one of us. So let's jump in. First question we got to ask about the book of Romans is who wrote it? Who wrote the book of Romans? That's easy. Tell me the answer. Who wrote the book of Romans? Right, the apostle Paul. Easy question. And you know why we know that? Because in ancient Greek culture, their format for letters was the exact opposite of our format for letters today. Like today, when we write a letter, we start with the recipient, who it's to, dear John, dear Mary. And then we close with the sender, sincerely Philip or sincerely Paul. Well, in the Greek, ancient Greek, they flipped that upside down. They started with who it was from and they ended with who it was to. And I like that format a whole lot better, right? And here's why. If you go home today and get a 10-page letter in the mail, before you ever bother to read it, what's the first thing you're gonna look for? Who wrote it, who sent it? You're gonna go all the way to the end. So the Greeks said, let's just start with that so you'll know whether or not you want to lead. And so this is how the book of Romans begins. This is how Paul begins his letter, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That's pretty straightforward. Paul wrote the book of Romans, only one problem. Paul didn't write the book of Romans. Spoiler alert, Paul didn't write the book of Romans. You go, wait a minute, Phil, are you some kind of heretic? Why would you say that? 
because of what I read in Romans 16, 22. Check this out. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. What is going on here? Who is Tertius? Tertius was a scribe. He was like an assistant for Paul, like, like a secretary. And so Paul didn't physically write this letter, he dictated it. And as he dictated it, Tertius, his scribe, was writing it all down. Now, why does that matter beyond it's an excellent trivia question and answer, but why do I want you to know that? Because it will help you as you read the book of Romans. Because what you'll start noticing in your daily reading is that Romans is full of these long, complicated, sometimes run-on sentences. Why? Because Paul is dictating it, right? Tertius is trying to write it all down. Now, when you write a letter, if Paul had written a letter himself, he would have been processing, like, how do I wanna say this, right? But since he was dictating it, it's just like a brain dump. Paul gives this full brain dump. So you'll see that throughout the book as you're reading it. But look, more than just knowing that Paul is the author and Tertius is the writer, you also need to understand who Paul is as a person, as a human being, because Paul, interestingly, he's a product of three different cultures, which is common in our world today, where the world is smaller, but in the ancient world, for somebody to be a part of three different cultures, unbelievably rare. First of all, racially, Paul was a Hebrew. He was Jewish. That was his race and his religion. Those things went together. So Paul is a Hebrew, but he's not just an average run-of-the-mill first century Jew. He's what's known as a Pharisee, which was the most elitist, most uh, the strictest sect of all of the Jews in the first century. I mean, Pharisees, to be a Pharisee meant at a minimum you had to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, right? Think about that, memorizing the, memorize the book of Leviticus. You ever gone in there and read it? It's like, Paul would have had that fully memorized. Paul followed every ritual. Pharisees were so strict on their religious behavior. If someone just brushed against their robe, if they didn't know for sure whether that person was ceremonially and religiously unclean, they would assume that they were unclean and they'd have to go through all of this ritual. That's why in Philippians chapter three, Paul says, I'm not just a Hebrew, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Circumcised on the eighth day, follower of all, a Pharisee. He's like, I am hardcore. Jewish. In fact, so much so that Paul spent the first part of his life trying to stamp out this church of Jesus, this movement. That was his job, going town to town, trying to find these house churches, drag these people out, and have them put to death. But all that changed when he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul went from being a persecutor of the church to a planter of the church, traveling around, all around the known world, planting house churches in communities, getting them going, and then moving on. Racially, he was Jewish. Culturally, guess what Paul was? He was Greek. Paul was from the Greek 
culture. He was born in the city of Tarsus, this phenomenal Greek city on the coast that was a university center. Think Ivy League. Think Harvard, Yale, Brown. Paul would have grown up in this city that was known for its academics. And so Paul was brilliant. Because he was Greek, he spoke and wrote Greek. Now, I know he's a part of the Roman Empire, but Greek was the universal language of the first century world. The Roman Empire, yes, Latin was the official language of Rome, but almost nobody could speak it or write it. And so the language people used across the Roman Empire was Greek. And Paul was fluent in Greek. Politically, and this is interesting, politically, Paul was a Roman citizen. He was a citizen of Rome, and that was unbelievably rare in the first century. The vast majority of people who lived in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. It's kind of like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are today. There's people from all over in there, but the citizens are a small elite group. And that's the way it was in Rome. You either had to be born in Rome to Roman parents, or if you were really, really rich, you could buy Roman citizenship because it came with privileges. In fact, there are a couple occasions where Paul leverages his Roman citizenship, not for his own good, but to further the gospel message. So Paul, is, this is, he's a unique guy, right? Especially in the first century. And that's what I want you to understand, not just facts about Paul, but understand Paul was uniquely shaped by God to serve God at this moment in time and at this moment in his life. That's why, look back up at verse one, Paul said, I am set apart for the gospel. He wasn't kidding. He was uniquely set apart, but guess what? So are you. You are who you are. You grew up where you grew up. The giftedness you have, the gifts, the talents, the privileges, and the things that you're oppressed for. God is moving and working in all of those. God has uniquely shaped you. Be encouraged. Maybe you don't like the family you grew up in. Maybe you don't like the culture that you come from. Maybe you don't like the, the citizenship or the politics. Maybe you don't like it, but you can know that God is using it. He's shaping you, not for your good, but for the good of the kingdom and the growth of you. Second question, it was written by Paul, but who was he writing to? Who was it written to? Who's the receiver of this letter? Answer, Christians in Rome. Christians in Rome. We find that in verse seven. Paul says this letter is to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now you gotta understand, Rome is both an empire and a city. It's kinda like New York. If I say New York, am I talking about a city or a state? Both, right? New York, New York. There's a state called New York, but in there, there's a capital or a city called New York. So you have Rome, the empire, but within that empire, there is Rome, the city, 
right? It's in modern day Italy with the Colosseum. You can go there today. So Paul is not writing to Christians all across the empire. He's writing specifically though to those who live in Rome. And here's what's really interesting. Paul had never been to the city of Rome. Even though he was a Roman citizen, he had actually never physically been there. Kind of reminds me of the movie Gladiator. Father's Day, got to have a Gladiator reference. Like Maximus, the great Roman general, he'd never been to Rome until he's taken there as a slave, as a gladiator to die in the Colosseum. Kind of the same way with Paul. He had never physically been to Rome, but he had a deep desire. Paul was constantly planning, constantly trying to figure out, how can I get to Rome? How can I go to Rome? Let me just pull out quickly a couple of verses from chapter one. Verse 11, Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Verse 13, Paul says, I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so. And then again in verse 15, Paul says, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Paul wanted to go there because if you know Paul's MO, you know, he travels to a city, preaches the gospel, people get saved. So he starts a little house church. He stays with them and pastors them from somewhere between three months and three years. He's there and then he gets it going. He raises up another pastor and then he moves on to another city and plants another church. That's not how this church in Rome got started. Paul never been there. So how did this church start? Well, most scholars believe that a group of people that were part of churches that Paul had planted either got sent to or chose to go to Rome. And since they were there, they started a church. And so this was kind of a spontaneous thing, different than all the other churches that Paul had planted. And so Paul knew some people, but he'd never been there. He didn't know. You can see now why Paul wanted to be there so badly, right? This is a spontaneous thing. You know, he wanted to be there, but he maybe also wanted to check on to see how they were doing church, right? Were they messing it up? But for whatever reason, he had a desire to be there. Why does that matter? Why do we even care about that? Well, a couple of things It helps us know why Romans, the letter to the church at Rome, is so dramatically different than every other letter that Paul wrote to every other church. Romans is so different from the Corinthian letters or the Thessalonian letters or the Galatians or or Philippians because you read those letters, it's personal. Paul talks about specific issues happening in that specific church and specific people who are doing good or doing bad, you'll find none of that in the book of Romans. Why? Because Paul had never been there. So what he does is write sort of this general letter, this kind of broad letter, 11 chapters on theology. This is what the beliefs are. This is why we believe what we believe. And then five chapters on how to put it into practice, how to live it. But it's a very general letter. So it's different, right? The other reason I want you to know that Paul never got to go to Rome even though he wanted to is because disappointments can be used by God. Paul was greatly disappointed. In fact, the only time he finally got to Rome was as a prisoner right before he was put to death. Paul was disappointed by that. 
You have things in your life that you're disappointed by, right? Maybe you wanted to be married. Maybe you wanted to have a child. Maybe you thought you'd have a different career. You had a different plan. Maybe you wanted to be at a different place at this point in your life. Can I just tell you, God can use your disappointments. Paul was disappointed he didn't get to go to Rome, but guess what? Because he didn't get to go to Rome, we have this incredible letter that can encourage and teach us. Third question, when was this letter written? Academic answer, 57 AD. The book of Romans was written in about 57 AD. We're not 100% sure right down to the month, but it's about 60 years after the birth, death, life of Jesus, right? So we're just, we're early in Christianity. We're just 60 years post the cross and the start of the New Testament church. But we are late in Paul's ministry. Paul writes this letter late in his ministry. If you know anything about Paul, you know Paul took those three, what the people call the missionary journeys, where he went around for years, you know, two or three years, he planned a bunch of churches, come back to Jerusalem, recover, go do it again in different places. He did that three different times. Paul writes this letter towards the end of his third and what would turn out to be his final missionary journey. And he writes it in the city of Corinth in Greece. He's kind of gotten to Corinth and he, he can't go any further. He's not really prepared. And so he just kind of shuts it down and puts it on Paul's. How do I know that? Romans 16, 23. Paul says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church, the whole Corinthian church here in joy, sends you his greetings. And we read in Acts chapter 20 that Gaius was a very wealthy businessman who was a part of the church in Corinth. And so Paul, taking a three-month break, is hanging out, living in the house of a very wealthy businessman. So you know what, that, in a coastal city, you know what that tells me? Paul's on vacay, baby. Pretty good chance that Gaius had a big old nice house with a pretty view, plenty of food. So Paul's taking a little vacation here because he can't take his next step, he can't keep going, but he's not ready to go back to Jerusalem. Well, that's interesting, Philip, but how does that help us read, study, and understand the book of Romans? Two things. One, it tells me Paul's writing out of experience, right? This is late in his church planning career. Paul is not some wet behind the ears, over-eager church planter who's trying to tell all the old people how they ought to do church. Paul has spent a lifetime He's planted, pastored, and dealt with dozens of churches and thousands of church people, right? This ain't the first church letter Paul's written. It's the fifth one. The only reason it appears first in his list of letters is because the church fathers who ordered the New Testament felt it was the most important of all the letters. But it's not early in his career See, Paul's never been to Rome, but he knows people and he knows churches. Far as I know, Paul's never been to Cedar Creek Church, but he knows us and he knows churches. And so I believe in this letter, he has something to say to us as a church as well. 
And I love the fact that Paul writes this during a, a vacation, during a little bit of downtime. Because first of all, that tells me it's okay to take some downtime. It's okay to take a break, to rest and restore. And as we're heading into summer, I wanna encourage you. Make sure you take some time to take a break, to rest, to recharge, but also recognize just because Paul was on vacay, he didn't take a vacay from his purpose, right? He took that time to leverage that downtime to do something productive for the kingdom. And so can you. Take a vacation, but never take a vacation from God's purpose for your life. Fourth question, why was it written? Why did Paul take the time on his vacay to write this long letter? Now, unlike the other questions we've looked at today, there's not one answer, there's actually three. Three main reasons why Paul wrote the book of Romans. One, he wrote it for a personal reason. A personal reason. He was introducing himself to this church full of people he'd never met. He was also kind of inviting himself to come to Rome, right? Because God said, yeah, I'm going to want to be there. I want to be there. So maybe a little pushy, but he's letting them know this is who I am. Why is it so important? Why is Paul so driven to be there with them? But look at what he says in verse 12 that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Think about that for a minute. Yes, Paul, the best he could do was send that letter, and I'm sure the letter was encouraging to them, but it's no comparison to the encouragement of being knee-to-knee, nose-to-nose. If we've learned nothing over the last two and a half years is that while being able to connect through technology is helpful, it ain't the same is it? It's different. And that's why I just want to say, those of you who are connecting with us online, no, I love you. I am so glad that you're connected. And I'll take anything you'll give us. But in love, can I just say, you're missing something by not physically being connected with the body of Christ. That's why we talk about home group. That's why we talk about being physically here. And look, if you live uh, somewhere where you're not close to a campus of Cedar Creek, let us help you get physically connected and do life in person with a great church family near you. Not because we wanna fill up buildings and pat ourselves on the back and go, look what a big church we are. It's because life is not meant to be done alone. Paul understood that. It was personal for him. It was also an educational reason for writing this letter. I already said Paul wrote it to teach and clarify both the beliefs of Christianity, that's what the whole first 11 chapters are. It's theology, it is basic Christian theology. By the way, if you're not a believer, read the book of Romans because it will answer all the questions you have or almost all the questions you have about why we do what we do, what we believe. How does the Old Testament relate? What does the nation of Israel have to do with my, all those questions are answered. But then it also has five chapters of how we are to live. So Paul is teaching. The book of Romans has been called the Christian Constitution. It's this idea that it is this foundational document of our faith. And here's what you're gonna find when you read it over these next seven weeks. You're gonna find that the foundation of our faith is not a whole bunch of rules. It's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts and commands. It's not about behavior modification. 
It's all about God's grace because that is the foundation of our faith. In fact, look at what Paul writes in Romans 15, 15. He says, yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Why? Because of the grace God gave me. You know what was the biggest issue in the first century church? Legalism. You know why? Because the church came out of the Jewish culture and the Jewish faith is legalistic. It's about commands and laws. And so that bled into the new church. They were like, well, you, you be a Christian, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, but you need to get circumcised. You need to follow all the rules. You need to wash your hands and be clean. And Paul's like, no, no, no. And who better to make this statement? Because Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. Paul had done all of the good behaviors. He'd done everything you could do to earn your way into a relationship with God. And Paul would say, it was all wasted. I consider it all rubbish compared to just simply knowing Christ. That's my prayer. Over these next seven weeks, as you start to read and study, it's not that you'll find a bunch of theology but that you will find the hope of God's grace. That's the reason we put the tag on this series, Romans. Hope that changes lives. Because that's what you're gonna find, the hope of God's grace. Paul wrote it for a personal reason. He wrote it for an educational reason. And guess what? He also wrote it for a financial reason. Now some of you are going, aha, I knew he was a preacher. It always ends with money, right? Yeah. But Paul doesn't write the book of Romans as a fundraising letter. He actually writes it as an opportunity for this church in Rome that's kind of different from all the other churches because Paul wasn't there to start. He's offering them an opportunity to partner with all these other churches to be a part of the kingdom of God. Look at what he says in Romans 15. He says, but now that there is no more places for me to work in these regions, that's why he was on vacation, nothing else to do, no place to go yet. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. You see what's happening? Paul's planning a fourth missionary journey. And since he's been everywhere else, now he wants to go to Spain, right? Because he's never been to that region. Now, did Paul ever go to Spain? Probably not. He ended up dying in Rome when he finally got to be there. But what I want you to see is Paul is giving this church an opportunity to join with other churches because that's what Paul's churches have been doing. They've been cooperating. They've been helping each other out through these financial gifts, these offerings. See, here's what I want you to understand. Here's why at all of our campuses at the end of the service, we talk about giving and opportunities to give. Not to separate you from your money so we can pay the bills and pay the staff, no. It's to give you an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Something bigger than even one church. It's to be a part of the mission and the vision that God has given us for his kingdom. And that's why Paul writes the letter to the Romans. Finally, number five. So what's the big idea? 
If you take the whole book of Romans, Paul talks a lot about, about a lot of different stuff. He wrote it for a lot of reasons, but he has one main idea. There's one overriding theme to the book of Romans, and it's simply this, the gospel message. That's the big idea of Romans. It is the gospel message. You'll see it throughout. And that's why Paul, in the last two verses of his introduction, which is what, chapter one, verse one through 17, that's all Paul's introduction of the letter. And in the last two verses, he lays out the theme for the whole rest of his letter, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Over these next seven weeks, over and over, you're gonna read words like righteousness, law, sin, faith, salvation. And as you do, I want you to just look at these as some sort of religious words. But understand, they are at the heart of our faith. Because the reality is we are all dead in our sins. We are all prisoners of bars that we brought on ourselves. And that yet God in his love and grace wrapped himself in human flesh, entered the brokenness of our world, lived a perfect sinless life, and then died a brutal death in our place on a cross so that by his shed blood, we could be saved and free and have purpose and meaning for life. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now, because of that grace, we are free to live for him, to live through him. That church is our hope. That is the hope that transforms lives. And can I tell you, that is the message of hope that our world is desperate for today. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this incredible letter, a letter that not only lays out the foundations of our faith, not only reveals who you are and how we can be in a relationship with you, but a letter that is full of hope and has maybe never been more relevant for us as a church who desire to be on a mission to bring hope to the hopeless, to shine light into the darkness. So Father, would you move among your people, the church at Cedar Creek? Would you pour out your spirit and your power? Father, will we be faithful in this summer season as we're resting, as we're taking downtime to be intentional about being productive in our purpose and what you've called us for. Jesus, we need your hope. Start a fire, bring revival, bring transformation, and let it start in me. It's in your name I pray, amen.